Go ahead and track down a Bible. We have them in baskets down by your feet. Uh, if you find one of those, we are in Luke chapter 2. And in the Bibles that we have here, that's on page 832, 832. And uh, I'm going to read the passage, we'll pray, and then we'll get to work. Luke 2, starting in verse 22, reads like this. When the time came for the purification rites required by the law of Moses... Joseph and Mary took him, Jesus, to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice in keeping with what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel and the Holy Spirit was on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts. When the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what the custom of the law required, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles, and the glory of your people Israel. The child's father and mother marveled at what was said about him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, This child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel, and to be a sign that will be spoken against, so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed, and a sword will pierce your your own soul too. There was also a prophet, Anna, the daughter of Penuel of the tribe of Asher, She was very old. She had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage and then was a widow until she was 84. She never left the temple but worshipped night and day, fasting and praying. Coming up to them at that very moment, she gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. And we pray right now that you, by your spirit, Lord, would speak to each of our hearts. Lord, we come from a lot of different things going on this week, a lot of different backgrounds, a lot of different um, seasons of life, and, and so Lord, we're asking that you would speak to each of our hearts in a particular way this morning that would help us to know and savor, savior, savor our Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray, God, that you would use this time to encourage us as a church family to know the good news of what we believe and to be willing to share that with other people. We pray, God, that you would help us to um, follow the example of Simeon and Anna and that we would um, have healthy habits that help us to be faithful even into the final stages of life. And so, Lord, would you you help us as a church family to hear your voice right now in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we're going to see here the gospel of Simeon and Anna. We're going to see some of the things that they contribute to the story that help us to know about the good news of our Savior. And then we're going to look at the Simeon and Anna of the gospel. We're going to look at people who are being changed by the gospel, who, who are doing things that help them to experience the gospel. So let's look first at the gospel of Simeon and Anna. The question that I have is, why is this here? Why did God give us the details of this little interaction in the temple courts with these two individuals? It's tucked into the Christmas story, so a lot of times we'll kind of cruise through it and we'll go, wow, that's neat. They were dedicating their child. They, they brought him to the temple. There was a dedication, um, but, but we move past it very quickly. And I just want to linger here this morning and ask the question, why did God 
reveal this to us? What is he trying to teach us about the message of his son? So Simeon helps us to understand first. He tells us that the story of the gospel is built into a story. In other words, the message of the gospel is not just an abstract concept that just kind of lands on us in our laps, but it's actually something that is a part of a history of of a people. It's part of an unfolding story that God has been telling from the beginning. So when we think about the gospel, we don't just divorce it from everything else. We recognize that it is tied and wed to the history of Israel. Look at verse 25. 25. It says, Now there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel. He was, this, this individual Simeon, was waiting for the thing that the, all the Israelites were waiting for, the consolation of their people. All the promises that God had given, all of the expectations, all of that stuff, he's there waiting for this thing to come true. Now, the reason why I'm putting it like this is because we need to become a people who recognize that the gospel is something that has a history, a story. God took great care to develop this story over thousands of years, and it's important that we would pay attention to how that story was told and what it means for us today. So my wife and I, we are way behind in movie watching. We had kids, and that just disrupted our ability to hang out in the evening and watch movies. And Avengers Endgame came out recently. How many of you guys have seen it? Many of you. I've heard really good things. So Ash and I said, okay, here's what we're going to do. We are going to catch ourselves up on the Marvel movies. We're going to watch some of the ones that we've not seen yet. And then we're going to be able to, to watch Avengers Endgame. We're very excited about that. Um, but it's a process, right? It's going to take some time. My son loves superheroes, and he's a night owl, so, so our odds aren't good. Because um, if he sees that on the screen, he's going to want to watch it, and he can't, he can't watch those things. So we're going to try to catch up. Now, some of you might say, hey, Cor, I can save you a lot of time and some money, and I can tell you what happens in Avengers Endgame. You could, you could grab me after church and say, I'll, I'll just save you all of that trouble. I'll tell you what happened. Now, would that be a good experience for me? No, we call that a spoiler. We, we don't want somebody to ruin for us the experience of watching a story unfold. And so th- th- what, I'm, what I'm trying to suggest here is there's a reason why we get caught up into stories. We like to watch them develop. We like to become... Um, connected with characters. We like to understand why things are told early on that, that, that show up later in the story. So why is it that Christians are okay with flipping to the very end of the story and looking at the conclusion and, and just being like, okay, I know the end. Jesus is alive. Let's sing about it and go home. And then we act surprised that we are largely unaffected by that truth. God has taken great care to tell a story. And he very patiently developed that story as many people contributed to it over thousands of years. I think that we should be people who, like Simeon, are aware that there is a backstory at play here. Christians should be ones who are able to read as the storyline progresses throughout the Old Testament and see that things come true in Christ. And when you recognize that, it makes your heart race. Because you're beginning to see God develop these characters and themes and ideas, and, and they, they were all pointing to this child, to this person, Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And when we begin to make those connections, I think it 
helps us to appreciate him even more. So Simeon was waiting for the consolation of Israel. I think we should be people who notice the story and see how in Christ those different storylines come true. Now let me just do one real quick. There are many that we could do, but, but let me just do one that's here in, the, in, in this text here. One of the things that happens here is Joseph and Mary are bringing their, their child to the temple as per the law of Moses. It's what they're supposed to do. This is what every eight-year-old firstborn male goes through. They, they get brought to the temple, they go through a religious experience, and the family offers sacrifices. And we're reading this in the story. They're all doing that. But here's something that's happening, kind of if you zoom out and you recognize this story has been developing for a very, very long time. Moses, who gave that law, the one who they are following, the one who is uh, one of the key leaders in the movement of the Israelite history, he tells people, this is what you do with the child. And now this young family is bringing in this baby, this eight-day-old baby. And in the story, what are we finding out? This baby is the greater Moses. This baby is the one that Moses was speaking about when he said, there's one coming after me who will be greater than I am. The law and all that that was in the law and all the things that the people were supposed to do was all pointing to this child so that when Simeon takes him in his arms, he is in awe of this is the salvation of God. And we then as Christians, we should be people who love and read the Old Testament because it helps us to know more and more and more about our Savior. So the first thing I want you to see is that the gospel is a story that has a long history, and you should become familiar and accustomed to that history. The second thing we see is that the gospel is a message of salvation. Look at verses 29 and 30. It says, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace, for my eyes have seen your salvation. He recognizes this child is the is the fulfillment of God's saving work, that God is going to save his people, that the gospel is a message of salvation, that we are people who, because of sin, we're separated from God, and because of sin, we have this threat of death hanging over us, but God has been telling a story that he is going to save humanity by sending his son and people trusting in that son for the forgiveness of sins and the hope of eternal life. And so salvation is this incredible reality that we're being reminded of here that the Lord has promised and now he is delivering this salvation. Now salvation is a, it's a verb. It's something that God does. God is saving a people for himself. But what do we also find out here? Salvation is a noun. Simeon looks at a baby and he goes, I have seen salvation. Now it's becoming even more clear. God's saving work is in this little child, this person and his ministry and his life, his death and his resurrection. Jesus Christ is the Savior. So we learn about our glorious gospel when we look at the words of Simeon. We learn, too, that the good news that we have is a message for all peoples everywhere. Look at what Simeon says in 29 and following. He says, You may now dismiss your servant in peace, for my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for the revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. Here's, here's, what, is, here's what he's pointing at. The message of salvation was never meant to be kept simply to the Israelites. It was always a message that had ramifications for all people everywhere. The good news of the gospel that we have is not something that we just sit on. It's a light to the nations. It's meant to be revealed so that all peoples would have the opportunity of hearing the name of Christ and trusting in him 
for salvation. That was a feature from the very, very beginning when God chose the Israelites. He said to Abraham, I will bless you so that all the nations of the earth will be blessed. God is a missionary God, and he cares about all peoples everywhere. Now, here's what this means for us. We cannot, as a church, be faithful to God if the only thing that we care about is us. If we think we like church, and we like this experience, and this is comfortable, we, we, we're beginning to know each other pretty well, we're beginning to, to get familiar with each other, and we could think to ourselves, as long as we could preserve this experience, this would be wonderful. The problem is the message of the gospel is a global message. And it means that there are people who don't know it yet who need to, and God's going to use us to do that. So we need to be a church that thinks not only about the comforts of the people who come here, but those who are not here right now. Those who are not in any churches right now in this moment, who who are in our communities but do not know the saving love of God in Jesus Christ. And we need to then be able to disrupt our schedules and our, and our priorities to be able to say, look, we care about them, so we're going to do what we can to reach them with this beautiful message. The, the, the good news is a global message for all people. It surely affects people in our backyards, but it also is a message for the, for the ends of the earth. And as a church, if we want to be faithful, we need to be a missionary church. We need to care about what's happening on the other side of the globe. We need to care about places who don't have access to the message of salvation. We want to resource that. We want to spend money in that direction. We want to train people. We want to even send people there. But we recognize that the message of the gospel is a global message for all peoples, for all nations, and we want to embrace that reality. The message of the gospel divides people. That's what Simeon's talking about when he blesses the parents, and he's talking about how because of Jesus, there's going to be division in the response to him. Look at, look at verses 33 and following. The child's father and mother marveled at what was said about him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, this child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul too. What's he saying? Jesus is the dividing line in humanity. He's the line in the sand. And people either see him and trust him for salvation, or they reject him. And Simeon then is prophesying that Jesus will do that in Israel and in Mary's life as well, and in all of history. That Jesus is the one person who which demands we respond to him, and we either say, you are Lord, or we reject him as irrelevant. But what, what's happening then is, he is he's saying, you're making a choice. And we're forced then to make that choice. We, we just went through the Easter season and we saw Mary experience this as she was standing at the foot of the crucifixion where this baby, after having grown up, was being executed. And she's looking on her son. And so Simeon was right that even her own soul was being pierced. As she's watching, there are people who love him and surrender to him, and follow him, and there are also people who reject him, and and turn away from him, and want him dead. And so he is that dividing line, and as a church then, what do we do? We present Christ as the one that people have to choose on. You have to decide, are you willing to align your life to what God is doing through this man, or not? Now the, the truth is, a lot of people don't think in these categories. A lot of people just think, no, I, I'm willing to entertain the idea that Jesus is a real guy, 
And I'm willing to look at his teachings and see some of the benefits there, but I don't really feel like I need to choose whether or not he's Lord or whether or not I'm going to reject him. I want to take a middle path. C.S. Lewis, when he was doing his radio talks uh, that were later turned into a book called Mere Christianity, he talked about this thing that many people are doing. They want to look at Jesus and say, I'm not choosing one way or another. I'm going to take him, and I'm just going to, I'm going to believe he's a good teacher, he's a good dude. And Lewis was saying, that's not an option. Look at it. I think we've got it, and we'll throw it up on the screen. He's quoting people who want to take that middle option, and they say it like this. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. And Lewis goes on to say, that is the one thing we must not say. A man who is merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman, or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. Jesus is the dividing line that people have to come to recognize. I'm either going to trust in this person for my salvation, or I'm rejecting him. But Jesus then is that dividing line. The message of the gospel calls people to respond. When we present him, we are saying to people, here is God's way of salvation. If you believe on him right now, you will experience salvation. But if you reject him, you are rejecting God's way of being made right. This is how it's put in John 3. It says, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they've not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. As a church, here's what we're doing then. We are presenting Christ as Savior and Lord, and we are calling people to believe in him for salvation. So that's one of the features of the gospel. Now, Anna gives us a couple more things that help us to know the beauty of the gospel that we have. The first one is, it is a message that is worth our worship and our devotion and our priorities. Let's look at verse 37. When Anna is described, we're told she never left the temple but worshiped night and day, fasting and praying. We find out then that when you recognize what God is doing, you could order your entire life around that truth, and that wouldn't be a waste of time. That you could devote yourself to worship. You could be in the temple fasting and praying night and day. It's worthy of our worship. And that prayer of hers is, is very incredible. I'll, I'll mention that in a few minutes. But one of the things we learn about our gospel is that it is worthy of our worship. And so I hope that you recognize that in your own life, that as you evaluate how you spend time and what your heart gets excited about and, and the habits that you have, I hope that you begin to see you have this love for what God has done for you, and it is showing up in the way that you order your own life. Here's the second thing we learn from Anna. We learn that the message of the gospel is worth sharing. Look at verse 38. She gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. She told people about him. She was willing to tell other people and talk about him. And I hope that that's true of you as well, that you recognize if God has done that for you, and you're aware of that, and other people could come to know that truth, that you would march out of here with, with a desire to tell as many people as possible about this child. So our gospel is very, very incredible, and it is beautiful, and we learn about that by looking at these comments and these experience, experiences of Simeon and Anna. But let's look now 
at the Anna and the Simeon of the gospel. Here's what we're doing. I want you to see them as good examples worthy of following. So let's look at them now as people who we could say, if my life began to look a little bit like how they're ordering their lives, that would be a good thing. And especially as I think about getting older and I think about what the final stages of life might look like for me, I hope that I would be like Anna and Simeon. I hope that there would be these habits that are on the surface of my life so that people could look at me and go, this person is faithful to the very end. So let's look at them. They both appear to be old. They appear to be well advanced in years. Anna, we're told, is 84 years old. So we, we get that right away in the text. Anna is 84 years old, and she's in the temple doing her thing. Simeon, I think he's old as well. And the reason why I think that is because of what he prays. He said, Lord, you can dismiss your servant in peace. 20-somethings don't say that, right? They're not going to say, God, life is good. It's been full. You can dismiss me in peace. I've seen what I need to see. 30-somethings don't do that either. 40-somethings, 50-somethings. People don't say that kind of prayer until they're well advanced in years and they recognize, my life is full. It is complete. I'm happy. I just turned 37 recently. I don't pray this way. I think in the future, I hope I have a lot of time left to hopefully do some of the most significant things that God has in store for me. I look forward, and I don't say, please dismiss your servant in peace. I say, please give me an opportunity to glorify you. So I think he's old. And, and, and so what I'm suggesting then is that we can look at them as an example, as examples of what old age should look like when we're faithful. And most of our ambitions and our goals are too short-sighted. We think, I want to do this, and I want to do it, I want it to be big, and I want it to be famous, and I want it to be fast. And we look at life and we go, I need this thing to happen. Here's what I'm suggesting. Let's lift our eyes up a little bit and go, no, here's, here's a, a good goal to have. Try to become the kind of person who at the very end of life, you're faithful. Who you have this way about you, where at the very end, the last season of your life, you are doing things that God is smiling upon. Don't just try to do the big, fast, and famous thing. Try to do the faithful thing to the very end. So let's look at them. Here's what we find out about Simeon. He is righteous and devout. Verse 25, there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon who is righteous and devout. Now we don't say that word anymore uh, in, in context other than at church. But here's what it's saying. People looked at him, and when they would describe him, they were saying, this man is righteous. This man has a way about life where he is right with God. And it's evident. He's, he's doing certain things that reveal a character that is being shaped into the likeness of, of what God would, would do. And my, my thing for us then is, I want us to be people who are described in this way. So when, you, when somebody thinks about you and they're describing you, I hope that they would be able to say, and again, they're not going to use the righteous word, but I hope they would say, this person is really good. It's, he or she is a good person. Their character is exemplary. Their character, I mean, we have them on our team, and you just want them a part of any project that you're doing that's significant. These people are level-headed. They don't, they, don't, they don't get upset about a ton of things. They're able to navigate the difficulties of life. I hope that people would look at us and they would say, they're right. They look at you and say, this person is living a beautiful life that reveals a connectedness to God. I hope that people could say that of you. I wonder what they would say, right? If you were to take inventory 
of your coworkers or your family, are they going to come away and say, this person is a good person and it shows up over and over and over again? That's what we want. We want to be like Simeon at the end of life. We also find out that he was devoted, that he had a, a way about his life where people could say, this person has a devotion to the things of God. Now, how, how can somebody say that unless there are patterns in your life that reveal devotion? So church attendance and the way that you pray and the way that you interact with people, I hope that, that, that there's a reality about your life where it's coming to the surface, where people are noticing you are a Christ follower and it shows up in your behaviors and in your motivations and it shows up in the habits of your life. You're righteous and devoted. And I want for us to be a community of people where that can be said of us and where people know we are followers of God. And I was at the gas station yesterday, and I'm going to just share, you know, this is different. There's a way to be devoted to the things of God where people notice. There's a way where we try to reveal our devotion to God that I don't think is always helpful. I was at the gas station, and a lady pulls in, and she has all kinds of paraphernalia in her car and on her car that reveals that she loves Christian culture. So she drives in, and I see bumper stickers and signs and all of this stuff, you know, it's in your face. Follower of God is kind of what she's trying to tell everyone else. I'm not saying that's what we should do. I'm saying we should live in a way where we don't need a bumper sticker for people to know that we follow Christ. But we live in such a way that people say they are righteous and they are devoted to the things of God. Another thing that we find worthy of of imitating is that he's patient. Look at verse 25. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel. He's waiting, which means he's not getting what he wants yet. He's patiently waiting for it. And I think we need to be Christians who can patiently wait well. He, he's waiting, and, and he gets to see this child being brought into the temple. He's waiting for the promises of God to come true, and he gets a, a taste of it. But what do we find out as the story unfolds? It's not the full deal yet. Jesus has determined to come not just once for all, but he's coming twice. So he comes and he's very, it's very subtle. I mean, he's born in the backwoods and he's born in a barn and then he, he starts to gain a followership, but it's like 12 people. And he does this thing and it's very subtle and it's very kind of um, just under the radar. And then he's crucified and he comes back from the dead and then he promises he's coming again. But the second time he comes, it is not going to be subtle. It is not going to be something that just happens off the grid. In fact, the Bible tells us that everyone is going to behold. Everyone is going to see. Every knee is going to bend, and every tongue is going to confess that he is Lord. He's coming back again. And so what do we need to do? We need to wait patiently. We need to be faithful while we are waiting. We need to recognize that day could happen at any time. And so we want to be ready, and we want to be doing what he would want us to be doing when he returns. I love how Martin Luther put it. He says, I've got two days on my calendar. Today and that day. And when you recognize that today can be shaped by the reality of that day, that changes things. You begin to think, Jesus could come back at any moment. I want to be found patiently waiting for him with an expectation that he could return. And finally, he was filled with the Holy Spirit. Look at verses 25 and following. The Holy Spirit was on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. And moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts. Three times, three three short verses. Here's what it's saying. If we want to follow in the footsteps of Simeon, here's a good ambition for us. We need to be spirit people. 
We need to recognize that the Holy Spirit of God should be on us, should be speaking to us about the things of God, and should be directing us to where he wants us to go. We need to be praying then that God would reveal his spirit to us, that we would have an awareness that God is alive and active, and by his spirit, he can be speaking to us and directing us. And so we need to be praying in that sort of way. Simeon was a spirit-filled individual in that sense. The spirit was on him. The Spirit revealed things to him, and he was moved by the Spirit. I hope you want that same thing for your own life. Now, Anna, we'll go quickly through her, but she tells us something about what's worthy of of, um, copying, and, and let's look at verses 36 and following. It says, There was also a prophet, Anna, the daughter of Penuel of the tribe of Asher. She was very old. She had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage and then was a widow until she was 84. She never left the temple, but worshipped night and day, fasting and praying. Here's the one word we could probably write over her life, devotion. What is she known for? That even in the midst of very unfortunate circumstances, that she had wed and lost her husband and now spent the majority of her life as a widow, she was devoted to the things of God, never leaving the temple, worshipping night and day, fasting and praying. If we want to think about what would be a good use of the final stages of our lives, I hope it could be said that we are devoted to the things of God, that our habits and our priorities are marked with prayer and worship and consistency to the things of God. I think that there are, that there are so many benefits to this way of life. In fact, I was thinking about it this morning. One of the reasons why we are here right now, in my opinion, right or wrong, but I, I definitely think it's right, There is a women's prayer group that for 15 years would meet and pray. And somehow I got on the list and they started praying for me. And then as we kept updating them on things that were happening, they just kept praying for it. They were like Anna. They were committed to this life of prayer. In fact, there's one lady specifically that comes to mind. She's older. She's retired. Her health is is even failing her right now. Her name is Kathy, and I think the reason why I'm standing up here today is largely owing to her prayers, that she was committed over 15 years to praying for me, for for my wife, for my kids now, and she was committed to these things. And I think, man, isn't that an incredible ministry then? Like, what if you gave your life to just praying? Like, Like Anna, what if you just gave your life over to this way of consistent prayer for other people. I wonder, I wonder what would happen. I know God would be pleased with it. But Anna then is a, is a great example for us as we think about what does it look like when we retire? What does it look like when life doesn't go your way? What does it look like when you're full of disappointment because you experience something like loss and devastation and being a widow? She shows us you can still be faithful to God. And let's try to be those kinds of people then. So what did we find here in our story? We found out that we have an awesome message. It's the gospel. It's good news that God loves us and sent his son to be salvation for us. And if we place our faith in him, we can experience rightness with God and the hope of glory forever. We not only cherish that message, we want to be good news people. We want that message to go out from us. And so we want to be good examples of what it looks like to be devoted to the things of God. I'm going to invite the band to come, and I'm going to pray. But why don't you do me a favor and stand while the band comes, and, and uh, we'll, we'll bow in prayer.
Lord, we acknowledge that way too often when we talk about the beauty of the gospel, we can be flippant. We don't see connections that we should see. We don't see how much anticipation there is that Simeon would devote his life to waiting on this reality to come true. Lord, we pray that you would move our hearts to see the the beauty of the gospel in a profound way, in a way that radically changes us, in a way where we, we wouldn't be able to walk out of here without being changed. Lord, it is incredible that you loved us enough to send your son Jesus to die in our place. We know that that is the dividing line in humanity, that there are those who believe that and trust in him for salvation, and we know that there are those who reject that truth. And we pray that as a church, we would do a good job of helping people embrace the beauty of who Jesus is and what he's done. Lord, we want our lives to be faithful to you to the very end. Help us to be like Simeon and Anna. Help us to be devoted to the things that please you. We ask this, please, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.